0: All right. So uh, before we move on to the exposition of the Book of Romans, I was reminded this morning, as I drove through the cemetery that is on the way here off of Grand Avenue, right by my house, uh, and there's people, you know, going and visiting uh, the the remains of, of their deceased uh, loved ones. I was I was reminded that uh, when I was studying one of my courses uh, of the 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 church in the 1600s they actually had graveyards right at the church site. So if you would imagine, like we have a a nice yard over here, they would bury their saints there, right? And it served as reminders. Every Lord's Day as they would come and worship the Lord, very consciously they would see, I'm preparing for the day when I'm buried. I'm preparing to graduate to that The life of the Christian, my brothers and sisters, is preparation for us to meet the Lord and for us to be separated from soul and body and our body will be in the grave. Now, many of us may think, well, I mean, what is that to me? You know, I'm still young and I'm fine. No, my brothers and sisters, I've explained to uh, several of you how in the very recent past uh, we have known people that have died as early as infants and as old as a hundred years old so none of us are exempt from being called to meet our creator please do not be deceived with that in mind let us continue our study in the book of romans and keep in mind that as we do so these are things literally of life or death if you are able please rise for the reading of god's word today will be Picking it up in verse 9 of verse of chapter 10, and we'll go through verse 13. Romans 10, beginning in verse 9. The infallible and authoritative Word of God reads as follows. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified... And with the mouth one confesses and is saved for the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved let us pray Heavenly Father thank you so much for your word May your Holy Spirit this morning give us understanding of what it is to be saved by grace through faith, and that we may abandon all human merits that we think may grant us favor. Lord, give us genuine faith, renew our genuine faith, not only so that we may confess it, but that we would also practice it, so that Christ would be Lord of our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I've titled today's sermon, Confessing the Lordship of Christ, Confessing the Lordship of Christ. In this section of the book of Romans, Paul has been expounding on this particular theme that we can summarize in two points. First, Paul is saying how grieved he is, he's saddened by the fact that, That his Jewish kinsmen, the people that he comes from, have rejected Christ as Savior, as Messiah. He's grieved about that. And secondly, he's expanding upon the reason why they have rejected Christ. They rejected Christ, and he's saddened, and he's telling us why it is that they rejected Christ. And essentially, it's because they wanted to establish their own righteousness based on works, rather than righteousness by faith. This is summarized in the opening of chapter 10, which we saw a couple weeks back, in which Paul, after expressing his grief, he says that he is in prayer for them, so that they may be saved. And then he says this, Romans 10.3 reads as follows, Speaking of them, he says, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Okay? So while the Jews rejected God's plan for salvation by grace through faith in Christ, we are so told that the Gentiles, without really looking for God, without really knowing about God, the Gentiles hear the gospel, And they believed the gospel and they obtained the righteousness that the Jews were seeking. Okay? So the Gentiles are grafted in because they believed. They heard the gospel and they believed. So then, what is the big idea? What's the deal with biblical Christianity here that Paul is expanding upon? What is it that makes Christianity so exclusive? that if somebody were to pay a little bit of attention, at least on the surface, it seems that Christianity could be pretty arrogant. Like, how can they claim that they have the truth? Why is that the case? And the question is, what disqualifies the Jewish people, as Paul is explaining here, from being part of the true Israel? Remember, we went through this. A couple chapters ago. The true Israel is the church. Okay? Not only those that are circumcised in the flesh, but those that are circumcised of heart. Those that have believed and are saved by faith. What disqualifies then the Jews from being part of Israel? The answer is this. What disqualifies them is the same thing that disqualifies all others. Which is this not recognizing God's righteousness, and trying to establish their own righteousness. Don't know God. I really have no interest in God. And even if I have a vague idea of who God is, let me come up with my own way to be righteous. This could be in a religious context. You have to do A, B, C, and D, and the rest in order to be right with God. Or it could be in a non-religious context, which is ultimately also spiritual. You have to be virtuous. You have to follow this cultural norms or advocate for such and such causes. So then here in this section of Romans, we're being reminded of the idea that if someone wants to be right with God by doing good deeds, by being a good person, go ahead and try it. But you will have to keep God's law perfectly. Going to Romans 10 5, right? The person who does the commandments shall live by them. You want to do them? Knock yourself out. And if we were to do so, let us be reminded of what James 2, verse 10 says. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Okay. So that becomes a dead end. Want to try to be good? Want to be righteous by doing the law? Go right ahead, but it's not going to be possible. And just as the Jewish folks were attempting to do that, and Paul was grieved by that, we must recognize that all of humanity attempts to do the same in one way or the other. This happens even within some denominations in Christendom and for sure within the cults. The common denominator is this. You must do something to be saved. You've got to do something to earn God's favor. So get working. This typically leads to two extremes. One extreme is, I'm doing really good, why can't everybody do as good as I can? Self-righteousness. The other extreme is, I give up, can't do it. No way, Despair. So people leave the faith and they become extremely burdened by the fact that they can't, I can't do it. So then what's Paul Main's point then with this in mind? Paul's main point that we're going to take away from this text is the following. Being saved, being righteous before God, depends on believing and confessing Christ as Lord. And it does not depend on how good you can do. So today we're going to explore what it means to be truly righteous before God by abandoning all self-merit, abandoning our good works as the basis of being saved, And instead, that we are righteous, we are justified before God, by confessing Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Confessing Christ as Lord, okay? So the major header, the first one here is going to be confessing and believing. We'll pick it up from verse 9, which Brother James preached last week, that was the last verse. We'll pick it up, 9 and 10, that way we get a little more context. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Okay? So the righteousness is not going to come to the Jewish folks by trying to comply with the law of God. They have already failed. And the same is true for all of us. All of humanity has failed. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So when the text here says that we are righteous by confessing, right? You speak with the mouth. You confess that Jesus is Lord. That word to confess, homologo, it means to acknowledge, to declare, to admit. To humble oneself and and say yes. God is right. I admit it. Think of it like this. Perhaps all of us can think of a time when we made a statement or we held a position and we were adamant about it. We were standing on that. And then more facts come to light or we are made aware of what actually happened in a particular situation or whatever it is that the issue was. And we become compelled to admit that, wow, I was wrong. I was wrong. You were right. I can think of several instances that that's happened to me. And if you can think of, oh, yeah, I remember when when my wife or my husband, they were wrong. And I was <laughs> that's the wrong way to think about it. Let's think about a way when we were in that position that even though we could have been so proud To not admit it, in our heart we knew. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Admitting, acknowledging. So when we confess, when we confess the truths about Christ, it is saying that we are agreeing with God. We are acknowledging, we are admitting that God is right, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we need to change our ways. Confessing, okay? Confessing with the mouth. Now, is confessing by itself make us righteous? Well, yes and no. Because the context of confessing that Jesus is Lord, confessing his Lordship, it's not a magic formula that, you know, just recite this prayer or say these words and voila. You know, might as well die right now because then you, you're you going to mess up again and you have to do that again. So the words itself, speaking the words, is not just the audible aspect of it. What it does mean is that a genuine confession comes with a change of heart, comes with a submission to God's word, with a submission to Jesus as Lord So it must go beyond just speaking the words. Not only that Jesus is, not only that he exists, but that he is Lord. I've often said that the most radical statement when it comes to us believers of of Christ, when it comes to our worldview, when it comes to advocating for our moral positions and convictions, is Jesus is Lord. Dictators don't like that statement. If you look at the history of the world, there's a common denominator when it comes to civil society, especially those that are ruled by dictatorships. One, they deny God. And secondly, they will come after anyone who genuinely confesses Jesus as Lord. Because those people, it's just a matter of time before they will not comply with what the dictators are telling them to do because that is godless, we can say, I'm a Christian, I confess Christ. Nobody has an issue with that, really, right? But the moment you say, and therefore, I will stand for X, Y, and Z in my positions, in my worldview, all of a sudden, when we say that Christ is above my peers and I'm gonna to submit to him, Christ is above civil government, and I'm gonna to submit to him because everything is subservient to him, then you got a problem. Confessing is not enough. Living according to the lordship of Christ is what honors God and is what is going to get us in trouble. Now, confessing. Agreeing with God, verbalizing that we acknowledge who He is, that He is Lord, He is my master, my owner. I was formerly a slave of sin, and now I'm a slave of Christ. In some Christian circles, we have been warned, and actually, Brother Johnny mentioned this in, in Sunday school earlier. There's been this notion of be careful not to be sucked in into Lordship salvation. Lordship salvation. And what I say to that is, so what other kind of salvation is there? Lukewarm salvation, which is really no salvation at all. If you have one foot in and one foot out, you're not in, you're out. Jesus is Lord. So let us understand that, what that means. is not only the speaking of it, it's the living out and submitting to God's word. It says, "Believing with the heart, if we believe with the heart, one is justified. If we believe that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, okay, that's what we ought to believe, according to verses nine and ten. Believing with the heart, to believe in Jesus is depicted in, is depicted in the scriptures as something very specific, because believing in a alternate version of Jesus will do you no good." Might as well believe in whatever else you want to believe. Let us take a look at what believing in the wrong Jesus looks like. In some of the major religions. And obviously there's much more to each of the summaries, but I just summarized it in one line. In Islam, Jesus is seen as a prophet. He's not got God's son. That's actually blasphemy. Punishable by death, if you say that. And he's not God. For our Mormon friends, they will agree with everything we say until you really start questioning what they actually believe. They say that Jesus is one of many gods. He is the brother of Satan. He is not God. For Jehovah's Witnesses friends, they say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. He is a created being. He is not God. In Hinduism, Jesus was a wise teacher, a wise teacher, even some would consider that he was one of many other gods. In Buddhism, Jesus was an enlightened man. And you wouldn't even be wrong if we try to be like Jesus, because he was an enlightened man. I would add to this two more. One would be the New Age movement as, as a whole is, well, you could believe that Jesus was whoever you wanted to believe. That's good for you. But that's, you know, that's not good for me. I, I don't have that belief. And then the last example that comes to mind, even though not listed here, we could have a right understanding of Jesus and still not submit to him as Lord. We are two in this list. The Jesus we believe in has no power because we're not submitting to his Lordship. So let, let us not look at this list and say, oh, these people, man, they're lost. Rather is, wow, where, where am I at? I can boast and think that I'm better because I believe in the right Jesus. But remember the words of Christ. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I command? So let us look at ourselves first before we criticize others. So, okay, we should believe in Jesus. Which Jesus then? Someone said uh, in a meme that I saw this week that... If you want the expert's opinion on something, pose a question on Instagram or Facebook, and all the experts will come to your comment section. Right? Is that what we ought to do? See what people say, what the experts say about Jesus? Well, we can't do that. We go to the Word and see what God says about Himself. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17, it says this. And this is in the context of, okay, so which Jesus and should we believe in? Here it is. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. So who is Jesus? Then? We are told here who he is. And by expanding upon that, I'm reminded of the Nicene Creed that tells us who Jesus is. He is Lord. He is begotten Son of God. The only begotten Son of God. He is God of very God. He is the uncreator, the uncreated creator. He was begotten, not made. He has the same nature as God the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus, He is God in flesh. He entered His own creation in order to save His people from their sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruler and sovereign over all. He is king. All nations will bow the knee to Him. He bows to no one. That is the Jesus we proclaim. If we believe in that Jesus, if we confess that Jesus, we submit to the Lordship of that Jesus, we are saved. Now, just a comment about, I grabbed some excerpts of the Nicene Creed to to have the description here. This is the importance of defining what it is that we believe. Make no mistake, vagueness is friend of heresy. Being vague about what someone believes. When you ask someone, well, who do you think that Jesus is? And they give you a wishy-washy vague answer. That's a red flag. Should be very specific on who Jesus is. So then why is this important? Well, because if we're believing in a different Jesus, we aren't saved. It's as simple as that. The words of Jesus in John 8:28 are the following. When he's speaking to the religious leaders, it says this, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Jesus made several statements such as this one. And when Jesus says and declares Himself to be the I am He, that word in the scriptures that they used at the time, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ego imi, that's the same depiction that they use to talk about Yahweh, God Almighty. Jesus says, I am He. If you don't believe that, you will die in your sins. This is the reason why then, as we submit to the Lordship of Jesus, as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we appreciate our Savior and submit in obedience to His will, that is something that we cannot keep silent. It is not something that we can say, well, I have my faith and that's private. I live my private faith and my private life and then I have my public life. There's no such thing. We all behave according to what we actually believe, not to what we don't believe. Our behavior then exposes our true beliefs. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ, making sure we have the right Christ and ensuring that it's not just lip service, but that there's actual submission to the Lordship. All right, the second header here, the blessing of confessing and believing. In this text, we can see that Paul tells us that there is blessings when we confess the right Jesus and when we believe with our hearts in the right Jesus. Verses 11 and 12, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. There's a series of blessings that come when one believes and confesses Christ as Lord. And contrary to a lot of common beliefs that those blessings will be in the form of happiness and material uh, possessions and wealth and comforts. That's not what the Bible says. Now, it could be that that could be part of the blessings that God gives you, but by and large, that is not what the scriptures mean by being blessed when you are a believer. So the first blessing that we can extract from this text of being a confessing believer is this quote that appears several times in the Old Testament, that those that believe and confess in such a way will not be put to shame. We see that statement in areas such as Isaiah 28, Isaiah 29, Joel 2, 26. And this is a passage in which God is either warning His people or telling His people that if they believe, if they have faith, in the means of salvation that he will provide that they will not be put to shame. That phrase not be put to shame applies to those who trust in God and that they submit to his Lordship. So then what is it the shame that we will not be put through? Well, in short, that's a shame that is brought forth by sin and by the condemnation, by the judgment that our sin brings. The key point being, on the day of judgment, all of us, right? For it is appointed for men to once to die, and after that, the judgment. Hebrews nine twenty-seven. That on that day, those that have confessed and submitted to the lordship of Christ will be vindicated. Well done my good and faithful servant, come into the kingdom. We will be vindicated. We will not be put to shame. In contrast to perhaps those that had a confession, but it was a false confession, in the words of Jesus, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So Paul reassures the believers that As they confess and submit to the Lordship of Christ, the blessing that they will have eventually in the long run is that they will be vindicated in their faith, in their confession, in their life as Christians on this earth. Now, let us ask the question, okay, well, that's a blessing that we are promised. We will not be put to shame. Is that true now in the here and now? Not so much. As we are Christians that stand up and preach the gospel, the times that we have even proclaimed in in the public and done uh, open-air preaching, how does others, how does the world look at us? Like these people are insane, they're fools. You know, curse words and insults thrown at us. Are we being put to shame by the world? Yes, we are. So this promise is not necessarily applied right now. Because many of us can be put to shame for believing in Christ. But that's the shame that comes from the world. Given our natural inclinations, we don't want to be looked at as fools. We don't want to be put to shame. So we may compromise. My brothers and sisters, let that never be. Let us remember that we have a promise that we should be encouraged that on the day when it would really count, we will not be put to shame. And as that is the case, let us think of that as a motivation, as an assurance that our salvation brings eventual blessing of being vindicated on the day of judgment, rather than shamed. So then that first blessing we could see in here is that we will not be put to shame, but we will be vindicated. A second blessing that we can see in the text is that we have unity in Christ with our brothers and sisters. There is no distinction in God's kingdom of who has more favor based on ethnicity, based on skin color, based on anyone's background there's none of that and to further apply that there's no distinction of where it is that I heard the gospel or who was it that reached me no there's no distinction on that that's of zero importance we get a glimpse of that in Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10 it says the following that believers enjoy. That is a blessing. Let us be careful then, the moment that we start to hear of ideologies that will separate us by race that is not of God, that is not biblical justice, that is ongoing at this very moment in our culture, in our education system. Critical race theory at its root is evil denies God, denies Christ, denies redemption. Let us be careful at what we are hearing, at what we are accepting, at what our kids are being taught. There is no distinction. All who belong to Christ, we are told then, enjoy this blessing of unity, and we have one faith, one Lord, one baptism as Ephesians 4, 5 tells us. Okay, unity in Christ. A third blessing that we see here is that as we confess and submit to the Lordship of Christ, we get to inherit the riches of Christ. His riches becomes ours. Ephesians 3, 8 says it this way. This is Paul speaking to me, though I am very least, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. So what is a glimpse to those riches that we are being told are going to be given to us? Let me just list a few here. Some of those riches are the following. First, we get the righteousness of Christ. The perfection of Jesus, which we need if we want to be right with God. That's something we are given. It's not earned. It's given by grace through faith. And because of that, a second rich, second richness that we receive is eternal life. Because we believe by grace through faith. Which means that we also receive peace with God. We are no longer God's enemies. Peace with God, Romans one. And then we see Jesus we see God for he for who he truly is we get the advantage to understand God's word we see the world for what the world really is we are no longer blind so our blinders are removed we receive the riches of Christ we receive the grace the strength to be able to resist sin Christ didn't sin. And as we become more and more like Him, we receive that grace, that richness of His to be able to resist sin. And then we also receive the assurance that whenever we go through trials, they are to refine us and to bring us closer to God. Those trials for the believer are not to take us into despair. No, we are assured that those trials are to bring us closer and closer to Christ. Imagine how would it be to go through trials without hoping Christ. I can easily see and if you think of your trials and imagine how that would be without Christ, you would be in despair. But we are not called to be in despair because we have the assurance that those trials refine us. And then another richness that we inherit is that we get to be part of God's family. Look around. Here we are. We are God's family, his church. That is a blessing that we receive in God's infinite wisdom that he has this embassy on earth, which is his church. And we are ambassadors for Christ we get to be part of that family. So these blessings, this riches that we inherit, are because we call upon his name, which takes us to the third and final heading here. Calling upon the name of. Okay, call upon the name of, Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible gives a lot of significance for those that call upon the name of something, right? It is used of those who trust, call upon the name of idols to be delivered. And we see that those who call upon something else other than God, Christ, will not be delivered. Specifically in the Old Testament, the phrase calling upon the name of Yahweh, that phrase is always used to refer to Jehovah. Extremely rever- reverential phrase. 1 Kings 18.24 37. Psalms 116.4. Joel 2.32 and others. Call upon the name of Yahweh. And Paul here is using that theme, that very phrase, as he's telling us that we should confess Jesus as Lord, that we are to submit to Him, trust in Him, believe in Him in our heart, And now Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Paul is not only quoting an Old Testament passage or passages, which he is, but he's doing more than that. Paul is doing something that is extremely radical to the eyes of the Jewish people. Paul is supplying that phrase, those who call upon the name of Yahweh, he's supplying that very phrase to Jesus. Which means this, if Jesus is something other than Yahweh, Paul is promoting idolatry. How can we be certain of this? Well, let us look at 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those... Who in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There it is, without any hidden meaning. Paul is equating calling upon the name of Yahweh to calling upon the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just to drive home that point, that Jesus is equated with God, He is God Almighty, He is Yahweh. When we think back to the narration of Acts chapter 9 in which Saul of Tarsus is persecuting Christians and now he has been knocked knocked down his horse, literally, by Jesus appearing to him. And then right after that, we are told that Ananias has a vision. And in that vision, he speaks to the Lord Jesus. And Ananias is afraid of what's going to happen when... Jesus tells him that he's going to meet a man called Saul of Tarsus. This is what Ananias says. Acts 9 verses 13 and 14, it says this. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from uh, from many about this man, meaning Saul of Tarsus, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What we don't see is the Lord Jesus saying, well, well, well make sure people don't call up my name. Like, make sure they call upon the name of Yahweh. No. This is yet another validation that when the Bible says those that call upon the name of Jesus, the author here, Paul, is in no uncertain terms making and giving the understanding that those that call upon the name of the Lord are those that call upon the name of Jesus are the same ones who call upon the name of Yahweh. This reminds us that if we are to submit to Jesus as Lord, to the right Jesus, we are submitting to God Almighty Himself, the divinity of Christ. Jesus is the one whose name we call upon to be saved. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's in Acts 4 verse 12. Okay? So, we submit to the Lordship of Jesus. Make sure it's the right Jesus. As we do, that brings us blessings. Maybe not immediately or in this lifetime, but we will be vindicated. And those blessings come to those that call upon the name of God Almighty, who is Jesus. So then, some final thoughts and reflections on the sermon here. First, the concept of confessing and believing. Is that a one-time deal? Okay, I've confessed. I've checked the box. I've signed my name. I submitted a, a card. So I'm good now. See you in heaven. Not so fast, my brothers and sisters. Not so fast. Now, while there is an initial confession, absolutely, yes, there is an initial confession. I'm a Christian. I trust Christ as my Lord. There should be a continual confessing and believing. It is an active faith. There is no such thing as fire insurance. And I'm good now. True belief will produce fruit. Belief itself does nothing for James tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. They are unregenerate. So as we make a true confession of faith, let us behave according to our confession. Let us not be caught in the warning of Titus 1.16 that tells us that those false believers that profess to know God, they deny Him by their works. There's a confession, but our confession can be absolutely denied by the way we live. Secondly. There's many folks. And maybe us, us as well. Sometimes could be included in there. We want the benefits of Christ. Without submitting to his Lordship. Of course I want blessings. Of course I want my kids. To be walking with the Lord. Well how about you? Are you walking with the Lord? I know many of us have a high standard for the education we give our kids, especially if they're small in grade school. But let me propose this, my brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter how proper education we give our kids if I'm still mistreating my wife, if I'm still lying and cheating and stealing. It does not matter the type of education I give my kids if I'm not living according to my confession. I want the benefits of a Christian home, but I don't behave as a Christian. And lastly, who or what are you calling upon? We saw in scripture that when the people of God are to be delivered, they call upon the name of the Lord. They call upon the name of Jesus. This obviously applies in our deepest trials in our most challenging personal issues in our lives, we are to call upon the name of the Lord. Let us be reminded of one of the shortest prayers in the Bible, when Peter started sinking as he was walking to Christ, and he took his eyes away from Christ, said, Lord, save me. Who are we calling upon? Let us be encouraged, my brothers and sisters, that as we call upon the name of Jesus, as we come to Him and confess, admit, Lord, I'm wrong. I need you. Have mercy on me. That we will not be turned away. And that we will be saved. And as we have a confession of faith, and we keep confessing Him as Lord, and we keep repenting and confessing our sin and getting up, We are living the race. We are running the race. Let us be encouraged by that. And let us be encouraged by the communion of the saints, by us being there for each other, by us encouraging each other, because when we're going through a trial, it could be that I'm convinced that this is it. And I'm basically done. I don't even know if I'm a Christian. And that's where the body of Christ comes around us and encourages us and prays for us, lays hands on us, serves us, loves us, gives us scripture, corrects us, rebukes us. My brothers and sisters, that is a duty of all of you. So that we can lift and edify each other as we submit to the Lordship of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... Allowing us to expound upon your word this morning about what it means to submit to your lordship to be true disciples, Lord. Lord, I admit that many times my behavior does not match my confession. Lord, have mercy on me, give me grace. And I suspect, Lord, that's the case for many of my brothers and sisters here. Let us come to you in repentance. With confession, acknowledging that you are right, that your ways are correct and perfect, and that we are not. And as we draw with that attitude, Lord, we have the certainty that as we come before you, before your throne of grace in the name of Christ, you will not turn us away. Let us be encouraged for that, Lord. We give you thanks, we give you glory. And we ask that your Holy Spirit may work in our hearts this very morning. In Jesus' name, amen.